Hello. Wow, you're here. Thanks for coming. Do you feel the energy? Welcome to Artworks. I'm Spencer Thomas. I'm trying to feel the energy, man. I am hungover. And I was very unproductive for the first half of this day, but that's all right. I'll tell you what happened. Um, last night I went with my friends, Thomas and Kara, out to uh, Creature Comforts, the brewery in Athens. Um, had some great beers. Uh, we went over to the 5 and 10, the James Beard award-winning 5 and 10 right here in Athens, Georgia, for some dinner. Uh, we have friends who work there, so they brought us out apps, and we had drinks, and I had some bubbly wine and some rosé and the craft beer and some other beer afterwards, and Thomas and I had a, had a bit of a time. We had a, we had a good go at it, but damn, what a delicious meal that was. I mean, shout out to 5 and 10 if any of you who work there ever hear this. Such good food. Um, if this shows you just how cheap I am, um, so many uh, fine friends of ours who work at 5 and 10, you know, they kept throwing stuff at us and being like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, we got you on this. And I was so thankful for that really great food experience. And I started walking home because Thomas took an Uber back uh, to follow his pregnant girlfriend, uh, back to Farmington, outside of town where they live. And so I started walking back, walking down Millage, which is like the sorority and fraternity row of, uh, of Athens. You know, UGA is here. And uh, I'm just walking down Millage. And I start looking at the maps on my phone, and I go, oh, shit, it's like a 40-minute walk back to my house. I thought it was a lot closer than that. So I look at an Uber, and, you know, I mean, it's not a very, it's like two miles. And I look at the Uber, and it was like $15, which maybe is regular Uber price. I don't know. I don't Uber very much. But I said, you know what? Fuck that Uber. I'm going to walk. And so in the middle of the night, my mostly drunk ass started walking. <laughs> All the way back to my house. Luckily, I called my pal Will, who was up and uh, kicking it. And so thanks, Will, for taking my call. We had a nice conversation <laughs> while I was walking the hills of Normaltown back to my apartment. Speaking of delicious food, I don't know if you feel like you are culinarily, culinarily, or culturally woke and hip to the cuisine of the innovative South. But you could probably learn a thing or two from Good Grit magazine. Which brings me to my next guest of episode two, baby. Ashley Locke, who is a high school friend of mine and has created this wonderful success for herself here with Good Grit Magazine. The whole reason we decided to do this interview was because of a Facebook thing that happened. You know, somebody was commenting about how um, when you go through a recipe, you have to read somebody's life story about like, oh, my Aunt Edna used to have uh, blackberries in her backyard and she would always make a pie and we could smell it from the window on a warm August day or, or whatever the case may be. And you're just like, scroll, man, come on, give me the recipe. Don't waste my time with this. And um, we were kind of joking on this thread and... Ashley came in with kind of a truth bomb for all of us, and she said, Hey, the recipe makers spend hours working on this recipe. They try it hundreds of times and mess with the measurements and, you know, spend a lot of their own money to make this stuff happen so you don't fuck it up at home. And the least we can do is scroll through their story to get to the recipe. And I said, Oh my God, I've never thought about that. Let's talk a little more 
and shed some light on it. Ashley, writer and editor of Good Grit Magazine, is on the show. Let's do it. How's it going today? Pretty good. Um, it's been kind of a slow morning, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been spending a whole lot of time at home as of late, as many of us have. Yeah. Um, I actually worked from home um, before the pandemic. That's um, right. Yeah. And I, it is very different, though, because... When I was working from home before, I did have the option, you know, of going to work at different coffee shops or um, different places, and it definitely is more of an at-home, at-home now, and I live in a one-bedroom condo in Nashville, so it's not the biggest space in the world, but um, it's been it's been fine. I get a lot of good light in here, so can't complain too much. Oh, that's great, and I'm so jealous of you. I, I just moved into a, uh, about three months ago, I moved into a concrete, like, one window in the back, one window in the front sort of uh, apartment. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I have to take a lot of walks um, and, and get as much sunlight as I can. Um, I've been doing that, too. I'm not looking forward to it getting cold. <laughs> yeah. I've been spending an excess amount of time outside. Yeah, just just walking or biking. What do you do? Uh, both, yeah. I walk. I walk. Um, thankfully, my neighborhood is a very walkable one in Nashville. Some of them aren't so much, but we have a lot of good sidewalks. I have a park that's less than ten minutes away, so um, a lot of walking. There's also some great hiking trails just ten minutes down the road for me. Um, and then I also have my bike that I'll bike around sometimes too. So, killer. Um, I'm yeah. I'm thankfully in a good area to do that. It's been kind of nice to I was thinking about the other day how active and outdoorsy I was in high school and how it's been kind of nice getting back to that you don't always realize that your body kind of misses that until you get back to it oh yeah and for me it's a clear difference in mental health oh for sure for sure I mean I can only imagine all the time that you spend I mean you're you're an editor right it's mm-hmm. your title. Yes. Um, um, yeah, I'm a managing editor at Good Grit Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I was digital editor. And before that, I was a staff writer. And so just kind of worked my way up the ranks there. I've been working with them since 2015. And so um, this is definitely the most responsibility I've ever had. It's a little overwhelming, uh, scary, and also lots of fun. I um, pretty much have creative control of the direction of the stories of all the magazines. Um, pretty much every story that's in there was uh, decided by me. The angle was decided by me or sometimes by some of our freelance writers who have some great pitches. And it's a lot of fun, but it feels like a lot of responsibility to be kind of in charge of uh, telling other people's stories. Yeah. So you're the main decider of who goes on the magazine. Yes. Yes. It's a huge responsibility. um, (laughs) It definitely is, but it's also given me an opportunity to meet some really incredible people. I've talked to more people and met more people than I could have ever imagined. And it is a very cool reminder that there are people in, in places you would never expect doing just amazing things all the time. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those, I never lose faith in humanity because I have a front row seat for it all the time. Oh man, that's fabulous. Um, do you interview people? I do. I actually still write stories for the magazine and the web. Um, oh wow. So, and and then sometimes I'll do a pre-interview. I'll talk to somebody before to make sure that they're the story they have to tell is going to be a good fit for our magazine. So um, I'll do pre-interviews and then I'll still write stories. And that has been an interesting process. At the beginning, um, I actually was an English major in school. I didn't do journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, I only took one journalism 101 class. So I can't say that um, I was too trained in that. I, I always thought of myself as more of a storyteller, but that ended up working out really well for the type of stories that we tell in our magazine. Um, But 
at the beginning, uh, when I first started writing, I would go into somewhere with uh, all these questions. I would be scared to miss a beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, want to make sure I don't miss any details. And kind of the more I've been doing it, the fewer questions I actually bring to the table. I've found that when I have a few questions and just let my subject kind of talk, they will usually direct you in the point of the story. They know the interesting facts. They they don't need to really be questioned. Um, I won't know their story as well as they know their story. So it's always better to kind of let them talk and then find the threads that you want to pull from there. Um, my interview style has changed completely and I feel like it's a lot of fun, um, to be able to listen to these people and to be trusted by those people to tell the story the way it deserves to be told. Yeah. Oh, well, you said that you were a storyteller and I mean, aren't you just taking someone else's story and interpreting it in a way that's fit for a certain publication? Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, you want to be be careful that you're not telling their story in a way that they don't think is true or emphasizing mm-hmm. the wrong parts of the story. You know, you want to be sure you're telling the story that they believe is is the true story. Um, but without it being PR, you know, it, yeah. it truly is storytelling. You want it to be honest. You want it to be true for the readers and true for the person you're writing about. And that is kind of how I got into food writing too, is just at the beginning, I was just writing stories about whatever and and slowly got into doing more interviews and profiles of chefs and things. And so, um, was that before that, good that was grit? really interesting too. Um, that, that was at good grit before good grit. I did write for a dime magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was uh, based out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a lot of fun too. That was actually for them was my first, well, I, I wrote for the college newspaper at the university of Mississippi, the daily Mississippian. Mm-hmm. So that was technically my first paid writing, but dime was my first post college paid writing um and then good grit after that and good grit was what uh introduced me to food writing that's amazing uh i was curious about that because uh you know it's funny we've known each other a pretty long time um Mm -hmm. i feel like at least since uh middle school or so but we i mean it's like we've always been friends but we've never we've never been incredibly close but it is nice to watch people from afar um uh develop these these new talents and uh I was just kind of curious because I I think it must have been a point uh following you over uh in social media and going like man when did Ashley just become a great and knowledgeable cook and for people who should follow your Instagram uh, and be inspired by the dishes that you make, um, how long have you been cooking at the level that you are right now? Yeah, so it, the seed was kind of planted when I was young. Um, my grandmother, who passed away when I was 11, I spent a lot of time with her growing up. She lived here um, mm-hmm. just outside of Nashville. And she um, had a bunch of like apple trees and blackberry bambles and muscadine vines. And when I was young, every time I would go over to her house, she would take me out and we would pick some fruit and we would make a cobbler or a pie or jam. And uh, for her, I was never too young to be in the kitchen. I could be a part of everything. And um, I, I was the only one of the grandkids that was really interested in learning those things from her. And so we spent a lot of time together in the kitchen and my family moved to Mississippi shortly after she passed away. Um, I still spent time in the kitchen, but not quite as much, you know, when both parents are working, you're not always getting like the longest home cooked meal every night. And my parents Mm -hmm. do cook a lot, but you know, a lot of it, a lot of the times there was like more efficiency over, spending time uh, cooking a meal just because, you know, you've got soccer, you've got jobs, you've got whatever, Mm -hmm. and there's not always the time. So then when I went to college, and this would be after my freshman year, because there's not so much you can do in a dorm. But when I when I got to, you know, what would have been my first 
kitchen that was kind of mine and not my parents and the apartment I was renting, I started kind of getting back into cooking again. I actually lived with um, another friend of ours from high school, Kimmy, uh, Kimmy Van, and she is Vietnamese, and she was able to teach me a lot of things that she and her family made at home. And so having the opportunity to learn dishes from her just made me get even more interested. Like, wow, there's this entire world of cooking out there that I have never explored. And it's something that can, you know, when I'm a college student that doesn't have that much money, I can't travel to Vietnam, but I can learn how to cook something from there. And I just kind of took that and, and ran with it and just got, you know, I would, I would have never called or expected to be cooking as much as I do now, but it was just a fun way to end my day. I never saw cooking as a chore or something that I had to do. It was always kind of a way to unwind at the end of the day. And so much fun to get my hands dirty. And at the end of it, I have this thing that I can enjoy and that my friends can enjoy together. And so just for the love of it, I started cooking more and more. And especially during the pandemic, I really just started like when you have that extra free time, taking that time and just really thinking, what are things that I haven't mastered yet that I want to try to tackle and pushing forward in that way. And then even even in the last year, I would say I feel like I've improved my cooking so much just from being able to talk to all these chefs I've been talking to, to have the time to try things that I haven't tried before, and letting go of the fear of not having something come out perfectly the first time that you make it. Yeah. Well, especially if you're cooking at home by yourself, you know, there's a level of failure that you allow. Like, you're like, well, I know that I'm going to eat this for the next four meals, and it's not great, but I did make it, and I know how to make it better. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It's kind of taught me a lot about, like, the, the recipe testing process, too, and learning mm-hmm. that sometimes, and we can get into this later, but sometimes when you cook something and it doesn't turn out the way you hope, it's not always your fault. Sometimes it is the recipe, mm-hmm. but we can talk about that later. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do want to get to that. <laughs> I do want to ask you, um, can you think of the first meal that you made where you're like, yeah, I really know what I'm doing around this kitchen? Let's see. Um, Probably... It was probably something that I baked. Cooking, I always felt like kind of confident with, um, Mm -hmm. but baking has a lot of chemistry involved in it, and there are a lot of things that like can go wrong with bread or with pastry. And so I feel like probably the first time I made like a really good pie crust was the time that I was like, wow, I did that. Oh, man. Yeah, my sister has always been more of a baker than me. Um, and uh, it's, it is it is so much more of a science. When you cook, you can maybe throw that spice in at the last minute because you forgot it or you can or you left something on the pan a little too long. It gets a little, uh, you know, it gets a little crusty, but it's OK. Like, I think there's a little more ebb and flow with cooking, but baking, it's like. If you forgot to put the flour in, well, shit, it's over. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that are like that. You know, if you use melted butter versus softened butter versus creamed butter versus cold butter from the fridge, that will completely change the texture of a dish. Wow. Or even something as simple as the recipe calls for a large egg and you only have a medium egg, sometimes that will change the dish too, just because. You might not realize it, but the amount of liquid in a large egg and a medium egg is so different that if you only have a medium egg, you have to add that liquid in somewhere else, maybe add more milk or something. Otherwise, it's not going to turn out exactly as the recipe was intended. And those are little things that a lot of people that are cooking at home might not know about. So it might seem, oh, I'm making these muffins. I'm going to use this medium egg instead of this large one. And it doesn't turn out and you think you did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And really the issue is just, you didn't know that the liquid amounts were so different. So for baking, it really, really is important to follow the recipe to a T or to make sure that you Google a good swap if you do have something missing to make sure that everything actually combines and the recipe turns out well. 
Yeah. And, you know, that's that's one thing that people do have to learn when they're, like, learning to create recipes. We kind of started this conversation because we were, there's that joke that as <laughs> everyone gets so frustrated <laughs> whenever there's an essay in front of a recipe and everyone wants to get to the recipe. And I totally understand the complaint. And I used to have the same complaint until I started cooking a lot. And then I came to realize how much work is actually going into that. Um, the more, you know, people I've talked to and chefs I've talked to and cookbook writers I've talked to. And it really is a lot of work that we're getting for free. Somebody might cook a recipe a hundred times for us to be able to cook it once the right way and that's time and that's their money on ingredients and mm. it, it's the least we can do to scroll past the story you know most of those bloggers make their money from ad revenue or from sponsorships and so if there is a food blogger that you've really enjoyed their recipes it can help them a lot if you just click the links in the story even um before you get to the recipe just as a thank you for all the work that they've done and if you want to talk about that, I can get into a little of a simplified version of what it takes to like yes, create a recipe. Please. Yeah. And I also want to hear, I mean, making a cookbook seems so daunting. Let's dig in. Go for it. It definitely is. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about the recipe creation and this is kind of the same for blogs and for cookbooks. And so if you think about the time that it takes, that's why it often takes years years, two or three sometimes even, to make a cookbook. Mm -hmm. But um, you pretty much start out deciding what it is that you want to make, and then your first go-through of it, you have to document everything, the amount of ingredients you use, every action that you take, how long you stir something or saute something, like down to the minute, you have to track it all. Yeah. And so then if it doesn't come out exactly like you want, you have to make it a second time, you can only change one thing about that. It's, it's like a science experiment. If you change two things and then the outcome is different, you don't know which thing you did that caused that change. Oh, so man. you can you can only take out a little bit of salt or bake it at a lower temperature for a longer amount of time. Um, so you have to keep doing that over and over and making these tiny adjustments one thing at a time until you get to the recipe that you think is the right one, the perfect one that you've been looking for. So you could make a dish 50 times just trying to figure out those tiny little adjustments. And even then, that's not the end of making the recipe because, like I said, you have to write down every everything that you do. So that's where you have your recipe that you wrote and you have to give it to a recipe tester. And they have to make that recipe based only on your direction. Mm -hmm. So that's where you're making sure that you have been very clear and detailed through everything. Because if someone tries to make what you've written and it doesn't come out looking how it came out when you made it, then you have to write the recipe again and see what is missing in the instructions that made this person have the recipe come out differently. So that's why so many times in recipes, they'll have a lot of different markers, like cook it until the internal temperature is 170 degrees and the skin is brown and crispy, or saute the onion over medium high heat for three to five minutes or until it's soft and translucent. Mm -hmm. You know, if you give people two, two things, that helps them know I'm on the right track. Since there's not necessarily pictures for every step, including those extra details is what makes home cooks know that they're on the right track mm. so it's a lot of work and a lot of learning to write things that you think are intuitive like how long should you stir something until it's fully incorporated or until it's just mixed is it a packed cup of brown sugar or a loose cup how long do you need the dough the differences in those things will be the difference in like a chewy and soft bread or a really tough loaf of bread and by the time you get to the end and it's been created by you and recipe tested, the same dish could have been made over a hundred times, like I said, just so that you can make it one time. And the time investment and the money investment, I mean, paying for ingredients over and over, it just really adds up when you're making a dish. So yeah. it's a lot of work that goes into those. And so I always try to be, <laughs> I, I'll personally read all the essays at the beginning of the recipes, just as kind of a thank you for the people that are doing that work. You know, yeah. a lot of that is, is the same in, in music or um, even at hair salons, you know, people 
might complain about the cost of something without ever really understanding the time investment or the monetary investment that is going in on the back end. You're just so used to getting something for free that you don't realize how much someone else puts into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've I've certainly learned the lesson with music, and I'm actually starting to learn it now with with making a podcast. I talked with my first guest Tuesday night, and I probably spent three to four hours editing the conversation, you know, just to make sure that it runs mm-hmm. smooth and, and try to eliminate some of the false starts. And I go like, oh, this is why these people are really asking for you to donate to their Patreon page, because they're exactly. they're, they're producing this content all the time. And they're putting it on a platform where they hope to garner your attention for you to maybe possibly donate to it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's quite quite a bit of effort and work. And a lot of times it's, you know, on top of other jobs. So it's mm-hmm. people adding on to their already 40-hour work week. So it is nice, even if you, you know, don't want to read the stories or skip past the commercials in a podcast to at least be aware that you should be thankful for all the work that went into it. Um, and then for recipes too, another, another issue that a lot of bloggers, food bloggers or, or chefs will have is when they do write a recipe, um, people will make substitutions. I kind of talked about that with like the eggs and things earlier, but they'll make substitutions or change the recipe in some way and then leave a comment saying that it didn't come out right and they didn't like the recipe not realizing that they didn't like it because they didn't do it properly. So like in baking, we talked about, you know, the, the reason you want to use unsalted butter all the time is because if you use salted butter, then butters are salted differently um, depending on which type you buy. And you are not able to make sure that the salt is incorporated throughout. You can't control the amount of salt in the dish. So if you only have unsalted butter at home and you make something sweet, and use the salted butter and then add the salt that's mentioned in the recipe too, at the end, you might come away and be like, that cake was a little bit salty for me. But the problem was that you used salted butter instead of unsalted. You've got to make sure if you are changing someone's recipe that they wrote that there's similar flavors, similar liquid content, similar chemical reactions happening. Mm-hmm. Um, things like you can, you can probably always swap Greek yogurt and sour cream in a dish, but then something like cream of tartar is an acid and you wouldn't think so, but you can swap that for a liquid, which would be lemon juice because it's also an acid. And then there's different fats. So like um, a lot of older recipes from our grandparents or something might call for Crisco instead of butter. Well, Crisco's probably not common in our kitchen, so you'd want to use butter, but Crisco is 100% fat and butter is not. Mm-hmm. So you might have to use a leavening agent like baking powder so that it's not as dense when you do swap it for butter. And so just making sure that like if you do have an issue with the recipe, is it because you made a substitution or is it because the recipe was not written clearly? And just knowing which is which is different and and being able to if you do have a problem with a recipe because it wasn't written in a clear way, it it's a service that you're doing to the recipe writer, if you tell them like, Hey, here's an issue that I had whenever I was making this recipe. So that that's something they can pay attention to when they are making them in the future. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of times when you are used to being in the kitchen, uh, you might not realize what home cooks don't do or don't know, um, yeah. when they're cooking. And so having that feedback in a way that is like helpful instead of critical, um, can be a real asset. Oh, of course. Uh, I know I've, I've seen many people who will comment on recipes and say, we substituted this for this and it turned out great. Or they're like, we don't, we don't eat meat. So this uh, chicken stir fry, we replaced it with tempeh and it was awesome. Thank you so much for this recipe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's also more feedback to the writer, to the, uh, to the recipe maker to go, okay, well, there are some alterations I can make to this dish that, maybe would be more applicable for people um, of certain diet restrictions. Yeah, and, and that is an important thing because there are differences. You know, I've been talking a lot about uh, problems people come across with baking, but it's the same in cooking too. You know, meat, meats have different amounts of fat in them. 
um, different oils will smoke at different temperatures. Um, something as simple as a sheet pan dinner can actually take time to recipe test because you have to make sure if you're using a protein that is a meat and you're putting them on the same tray as vegetables, you have to make sure that those will be able to cook at the same temperature for the same amount of time. Otherwise, you might come out with meat that isn't fully cooked and vegetables that are burnt. Mm. So thinking about all those things, thinking about where can you use tofu or chickpeas or tempeh or satan instead of a protein um, and having those swaps written into your recipe can be very, very helpful for people. Because like you said, there's a lot more care for dietary restrictions these days, which is great because even back when we were growing up, it was kind of difficult to find anything that just wasn't for a standard person's diet. And so being able to show how your recipe is adaptable or what changes you can make to make something vegan or vegetarian um, can be very, very helpful. And when people add those in the comments too, when people, you know, maybe they are vegetarian, didn't have access to a lot of vegetarian recipes when they were growing up and they've gotten used to making those swaps when they add those comments that lets other people know like, Hey, you can use tofu instead of chicken here. That is oftentimes very helpful for other people who want to make those swaps too, but maybe don't feel as confident about it. There's a, a lot of books that I think are like cookbooks that I think are really good places for people to start if they are, you know, they don't have a, a kitchen stocked with like all of the things all of the time. And if, if, if you want to be able to cook more with what you're likely to have at home, a couple of cookbooks that I think are really great. Um, one is called How to Cook Without a Book. And the whole premise is kind of teaching you about what things taste good together, what kind of elements and properties you should look for in a dish, how you can cook things at the same time or um, what you can substitute and how you can intuitively throw things together. And then Samin Nosrat, who everyone probably knows from her Netflix show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, her yeah. book, which is the same title, goes into a lot of ideas about that too, about what elements go into making a really good meal. And those are great places to start because it helps you learn the bases before you just jump into cooking. And when you know, you know, how to combine an acid and a salt or, you know, how to make a base dressing for a salad. Um, that's when it gets a million times easier to do whatever you want and be able to play around. And even if you're just like messing around in the kitchen and throwing things together, you're probably more likely for it to turn out tasting really delicious. My father and my mother, when it came to the kitchen, my mom was from Louisiana, so, you know, we had gumbo, we ate jambalaya, we did crawfish etouffee. Um, I was really fortunate to be surrounded um, by good food and always having good music on when good food was being cooked. It was a part yeah, of my household, and I mean, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. But my dad would take something to the grill, he would throw... Whatever spices and um, vinegars or, or what have you on on a piece of meat, uh, he doesn't have a sense of smell, which I find really <laughs> important whenever I'm making when I'm trying to marinate something. You know, I, I'm I'm constantly like, if I'm stirring up a marinade, I'm constantly smelling, and he doesn't have a sense of smell, and he just kind of throws in whatever, and then my mom is like, "What well, would you put in it?" And he's like, "I don't know." And she's like, well, why don't you write it down? And he goes, I, I don't know. You know. Because I think he just likes to experience the moment of being able to just create and throw it together. And I I am all for that. Um, it, it, it's really nice to just sort of have this mysterious 
marinade that you do for a meat or, or we used to like, we would inject our Thanksgiving turkeys with all sorts of stuff that we would just pull out of the cabinets. And mm-hmm. whenever it really popped, we would go like, well, you know, I kind of have an idea, but we can just let the, the turkeys of Thanksgiving, uh, 2018 be the really good ones that we had <laughs> and just kind of <laughs> let the mystery be. Definitely. I, I do that a lot at home or, um, especially when I'm getting toward, so I, I get, um, produce delivered from Misfits Market and it's, yeah. um, a, a service that basically like all of the food that's too ugly to go to grocery stores, they send you that. And so you get produce at a discount and it's just not beautiful, but it tastes the same. So it might be like weirdly shaped potatoes or onions that are too small or something like that, but it's all perfectly usable food. And so Mm. since I get it delivered like that, I get a huge box. And when it gets, when, when it's been, you know, a week and a half and my produce is starting to get where it's like a little wilty, I'll always play a game with myself to be able to make sure I use it all before it goes bad. And so I kind of test myself to, you can't go to the grocery store. You have to cook with what you have at home. Like, what can you make? Um, And where in the past I would have turned to like, well, I don't have anything, but I have this like box of macaroni and I would just end up with really good, but (laughs) Annie's mac and cheese or something. Now I'll, I'll, I'll challenge myself and, you know, crisp up some chickpeas and roast some beets and like make a grain bowl. And, and it's, it's kind of a fun challenge when you are like, you don't look at it. It's like, uh, I'm about to run out of like, my produce is about to go bad. I'm going to have to throw it away. Like this sucks. Like instead you're like, no, this is a game. What can I do to make this work? Um, and I kind of do the same thing before the pandemic and I'll hopefully be able to get back to this one day because I really miss it. But, um, Mm -hmm. living here in Nashville, when I first moved back, I, didn't have a a huge friend group here, but I had a lot of friends that I knew from other places that didn't know each other. And so I was thinking of all the ways that I could get my different friends to like meet each other and be more of a like friend group that can hang out together and do things together. And so the best way that I always think to do that is through food. So I kind of did the same thing with my friends and I texted them all and said, Hey, look in your fridge, look in your pantry, see what's about to go bad and just bring it over to my house and we're going to like all make a meal together out of it. And so I called it pantry pasta and I would always just have the noodles and different friends would bring uh, like some wrinkly tomatoes or some like wilted greens or cheese that was like the stub end of it or whatever and just bring whatever they had and we would all make food and then eat together and watch Netflix or something. And it was a lot of fun, a way to get rid of our groceries that we're about to go bad and just like a great excuse to get together and have a dinner party. So, um, I think it's always important to try to use those foods that are about to go bad just because food waste is such a problem. And to get on kind of a different subject, that is why I'm, I'm not opposed to meal delivery kits too. I know a lot of people don't really like them like blue aprons type things but i i think that they're totally fine because for a lot of people one of the challenges of cooking is not having the time to like research what recipe you want to make and then go to the grocery store and buy them i'm lucky enough to live right beside a grocery store so it's not difficult for me to do that but sometimes it can take people 20 or 30 minutes just to drive to the grocery store that was true for my family when we lived in canton Mm. um so meal delivery kits are a way that cuts the time down where your only time investment is actually cooking the meal. And almost everyone has 30 minutes of their day where they can actually cook a meal. And not only that, since they only give you the ingredients that you need for that meal, you're less likely to be wasting food or throwing out food at the end of it. And I think that is so important. Reducing food waste is a a really big deal because food waste is one of the things that is like, you know, bad for the environment, bad Mm -hmm. for greenhouse gases, you know, just bad because in other countries, they don't have the food to waste that we have. And so being very mindful of using everything that you buy is really important. And meal delivery services not only are a good way to introduce people to cooking, but are also a great way to make sure we're not throwing away a bunch of meat and vegetables that were perfectly good. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I really try to to totally scorch my fridge in whatever way I can. And I mean, and it is it it is a bit of a sad moment. Um, I just try to be conscious and, and think like, oh man, I didn't use this bell pepper. And now look at it, just wilting away, just dying in my refrigerator right now. And, and now I have to do something with it. Luckily, I have, a, in Athens, they have a compost service where they pick up your bucket of compost and they just deliver you oh, a new bucket great. every week. Yeah, uh, it's called Awesome Possum Composting. And so I just take the bucket out to my apartment. So I do That's feel awesome. I, I feel better about wasted food um, because of that option. But uh, it, it does it does feel good when you go to the grocery store and you grab everything that you need and you cook with all of those ingredients. And you don't waste a thing, and you also have a delicious meal out of it. Totally. And and there are ways you can kind of grocery shop that can reduce waste on your own. I have a highlight on my Instagram where I talk about the ways that I kind of grocery shop. And this kind of only works if you do have the time to go to the grocery store multiple times a week. But I think that if you have the time, that is definitely the best way to do it where maybe quarterly you stock up on all your grains, your rices, your things that last in your pantry, oats, mm. things like that. And then once a month you buy your meats and you can keep the meat. You're not going to use that week in the freezer, but you have enough to last you the month. And then for produce, you should buy it two or three times a week. So you're only buying the produce that you plan to eat for the next two or three days so that it's less likely for it to go bad. And even though you're grocery shopping more often, it will take you less time to grocery shop and you're less likely to waste a bunch of food. So I kind of break down what I try to keep in my pantry all the time and, and the way I do that in that Instagram highlight. And like I said, it really only works if you do have a grocery store near you and you can shop a lot or a farmer's yeah. market that you can go to, which I also Totally. So I go to my local farmer's market every Tuesday and it's amazing. So if you do uh -huh. have the opportunity to support your local farmers or your CSAs, you should do that too. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really helpful when you can grocery shop more often for less food. Yeah. Uh, I, I have been blessed with a place around the corner called Los Compadres and it's, it's just a little, Hispanic grocery store. I mean, and they have all the produce out, and when the cilantro is gone, it's gone. I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's how it is, just uh, daily. And um, and one day I walked out of there with, you know, just an armful of produce. Uh, they have a meat counter. I got two, you know, beautiful uh, chicken breasts and and like a six pack of Heineken. And I was like, that was like twenty three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's just so amazing to have that like in walking distance around the corner where I can, you know, I'm missing a bell pepper. Let me run to the store. Totally. I, th I think. And it's, I know, I know you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I know you know a lot about this because of going to school adult estates. That's one of the, the biggest problems that we have for getting people healthy food is we do have that luxury. You and I both are able to walk to these local markets and get some fresh produce, but there's so many places in, in the Mississippi Delta, for example, that mm. that's where all the farms are, but there's no access to the things that those farms are growing. There's not farmer's markets and, and grocery stores on every corner. And, and sometimes to get the things you need, you have to drive over an hour. And yeah. these food deserts that are keeping people from being able to access fresh produce um, causes a lot of health issues. And we really do need to take a look at what we can do to make sure that there's equal access to everyone to these healthy foods. Yeah. Um, to these foods that are, are surprisingly just being grown and not sold where they are. So um, definitely don't take for granted that you have that market around the corner. Oh, man, I, I don't. I'm so thankful for it every day. And I mean, um, I do want to ask, though, what can we do in that regard? Yeah, well... So I'll, I'll give you 
my best example right now. So okay. something that I really like to focus on as an individual is harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And so just finding the, like whatever community you're living in, finding out what the problems are and then deciding what you can do to help. So one person who's a great example of that in the Mississippi Delta is a woman named Dorothy, and she was a nurse and was realizing that a lot of people that lived in her area had all these health issues, and she started asking about their diet and realizing that they were not getting these fresh fruits and vegetables. So she Mm -hmm. quit her job as a nurse and started a program called MEGA, which is Mississippians Engaged in Greener Agriculture. She bought a bunch of land, she put some trailers on there, and now she has a program for students, after school program and summers and things where students after school, they come, they learn how to grow fresh roots and vegetables. She teaches them how to garden. Um, they have, I think, two different gardening locations in the Delta at the moment. It might have grown bigger, but she teaches them how to garden. Then once the vegetables and, and fruits have grown, they harvest them and she teaches them how to cook them and they're able to take those fruits and vegetables home to their families. And so they're learning these skills that they can take home with them and started a, a garden at their house and then have access to things that they didn't have access to before. And they're gaining that knowledge as children and will be able to pass that on to their children. And so that is something that was a very small scale, but is actually going to help generations of people just because of the work that she's done. And then there are things that like here in Nashville, something that I'll do is go to the public school that's in my area and check and see if there's any school lunch debt. And for Christmas, I'll pay off a certain amount of school lunch debt so that those kids, when they come to school, can get a a nutritious meal and not have to worry that they can't pay for it. So um, different things like that, just finding out what is the problem in your community and what can you do that is the most helpful? And with food, there's a lot of things, you know, checking in on your local food bank. Another thing I like to do is every time I go grocery shopping, I just send an extra $5 to my local food bank because $5 is not that much for me on a grocery bill. And if I'm shopping once or twice a week, that's 20 to $40 to my food bank that will go a long way for them. So there's a lot of ways that you can help and it's just finding out what is the most important for the community that you live in. Oh man, thank you for that information. That's, that's very inspiring and also sounds very accessible. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I, and I think a lot of people when it comes to helping their community, especially in that way, people who are hungry, they don't really, they don't necessarily know where to start. Um, yeah, for sure. Before we start to wind down, I do want to ask about your Cooking Every Country project. <laughs> yes, I've, I've been on a pause for it for a minute just because um, we were just wrapping up an issue of the magazine, and so it always gets crunch time towards the end, but I'm about to start that back up again. Um, and it's been so much fun. I just got really inspired. I know a lot of us were doing some serious self-reflection this past summer, you know, uh, both you and I growing up in Mississippi, we probably had a more clear view of racial tensions and things that were happening than a lot of other people throughout the country might have had. But even then, there were lots of things that I personally realized that I could be doing more, could be thinking about things in a certain way. And one of the things that I really realized over the summer was I spend a lot of time recreating Asian dishes and I love Indian food and Thai food. And those were things that I was trying to cook at home a lot. And I never made something from an African country. And I was like, why is that? Why did I never think to try making something at home that's from Ethiopia or Nigeria? So I started my Cooking Every Country project because I was like, I am interested in these cultures. I want to know there's so many foods that we don't realize where they came from or what the histories behind them are or the links to uh, different countries in the past, especially in the United States, which is such a new country. So um, I, I just really was like, I want to take this as a time to learn about all these countries, about all the types of food that they make, what's important to them, what ingredients do they use, and why. So I'm doing them in alphabetical order, started with Afghanistan and going from there. 
And there, there were just so many things that I've been learning, like um, recipes like for gumbo kind of have their traces back to Angola and um, different things like the types of fruits and, and nuts that they use in savory foods in Afghanistan and these Middle Eastern countries. And so I'm cooking through them one at a time. It'll probably take a couple of years for me to get through them all because even yeah. if I did two a week, it would still, I mean, there's a lot of countries in the world. But I have a spreadsheet, and I've, I've shared it with people. So if they have suggestions for a country, they can go and fill that into the country. Um, and on my spreadsheet, I name the dish. If it's vegetarian or not, I include information about the dish, like if it's a national recipe, if it's a street food, if it's like a family recipe, that type of thing. I list the blog I get it from. I make a grocery list. And then after I eat it, I make tasting notes so that anyone who is interested in any of those foods can go back and cook it themselves, too. So it's been really fun. I've learned so much. I'm still in the A's, but I'm almost to the B's. And I'm really, really excited to finish it out. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw I made a note here. The Was it the Moamba de Galina? Is that how you say it? Yes. Um, from yeah. from Angola, the dish, it, it looked mm-hmm. like there was okra in it? Yes, there's okra in it. So it's mm-hmm. a very, a lot of the, the foods that we make in the South really had roots in Angola. When I, when I cooked and made that dish, the first thing I thought when I ate it was, wow, this tastes very Southern. This tastes like something I could walk into a soul food restaurant and order. Uh. Um, it was really crazy how to my taste buds, how much it felt like eating something that was home to me. Um, yet it was a recipe that was deeply rooted in the history of Angola. So um, it, it, it's just really fascinating to think about how these things that are they're comforting to me, a, another way that just people connect through food, like these types of flavors that I've been eating my whole life actually came from this country that I've never given a second thought to until I made this dish and researched this dish and to realize how I'm tied to those people in, in this way through, through food and how I should be, you know, honoring and paying respect to that. Um, I wouldn't be able to make the things that I'm making today without the hard work of people throughout history that are the ones that are combining these flavors and, and making these things that get passed down. So it's a very cool thing to learn about. That's amazing. Um, I hope that somebody is going to write a story on you about this project <laughs> once you once you finally finish at one point. Uh, would you share Cooking Every Country as a collection for the public? Yeah, I mean, I, I think once I get through it all and I have all my notes and everything, I mm-hmm. probably I could. I I probably, I might think about turning it into kind of like a PDF book and I have a website that I just keep my writing portfolio on and I could easily add it there to download and have, you know, all those clickable links so that the recipes are really accessible to everybody. I definitely think it's a fun project and I would love for more people to participate and get involved and maybe learn something about a country that they hadn't really thought to learn about before. Um, I think food is one of the best ways to start learning about a country. I think the more people that want to participate and get involved in this, the better. Oh, wow. This is so inspiring. I really, I <laughs> didn't, I didn't get to say so at the beginning of the, the show, but now I want to say like, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you taking this time to talk with me about all this. I mean, uh, <laughs> Especially after being inspired by <laughs> your your comment on Facebook, which uh, I will probably tell in the in the in the uh, intro of the show, I'll tell that story. But um, I am ending all of these episodes with uh, three questions that I will universally ask. And the first one for you, Ashley, is what was your last feeling of success? And that doesn't necessarily mean career-wise, whatever way you want to put it. Okay. Well, I think my last feeling of success probably actually was career-wise just because of the moment that I'm in. I became managing editor of the magazine 
um, towards the beginning of the pandemic. And the issue that came out, the first issue that I was managing editor had still been put together by the previous editor. So I didn't have as much to do with that one. But the one that I actually worked on from start to finish, I completed in the last month and it's uh, about to hit stands in the next couple of weeks, um, early November. So that just felt like such an accomplishment to me to have the first issue that I really worked on from start to finish and to see that come to life. I just can't think of anything that was more exciting than that recently. So, Oh my gosh. Um, that, you must be just <laughs> it like feels giddy. Cool. Yeah. I really, I really am. I can't wait to have it in my hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so I haven't had my hands on a magazine, but when I was researching, so I can let the public know that I did research. Um, but I was looking at your, I was looking at the Good Grit website. I mean, it's it, it's a beautifully done website. I was, I, I was skimming through some of the stories. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a, a really great thing that you're doing, a really great thing that you're a part of. Oh, thank you. We yeah. we definitely try to do our best and try to be really diverse in our storytelling. And I think my whole mission is to tell stories that are relatable to people. I don't. I don't think we want to be telling stories of people that were born into families with a lot of privilege and, and start something. I, I, I want to be telling those like really gritty stories of people who came from nothing, of people who live in these small towns and made a name for themselves, of regular people like you and I who maybe don't even always succeed, but they tried. Um, mm. I'm glad that you enjoyed looking at the website. It feels very personal. I mean, when it's your job, obviously, it, it feels very personal. So totally. I'm very glad to receive the compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. What is the biggest unsung difficulty of your industry that people outside of it might not think about? Oh, my gosh. Probably, probably similar to recipe testing in that when a issue is coming out, um, mm-hmm. We are reading the same stories over and over, probably 50 times to look for typos, to look for issues before it can get sent to press. And just it it can get really um, tiring to read the same thing over and over. You can get a little bit brain dead and it can get harder to check mistakes. And so you have to do things like read read the story backwards or do all these things to make sure that you're catching all the mistakes, but just, just the time investment of making sure that there aren't like typos throughout the book. It it probably is the longest process and one that people don't think about as much. How many eyes actually go on every single story before we go to press. Yeah. You read the story backwards. (laughs) Sometimes I do. It'll, it'll um, make things stand out. If you read it the same way, from beginning to finish over and over, you you kind of will lose like your focus on it. And so mm-hmm. you read the story backwards and it'll make mistakes a little bit more apparent because your brain's actually having to work harder to read the sentence. And so the wow. issues will stand out more. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, for everybody uh, reading one of your publications, Ashley Locke has to read her own story 50 times, sometimes backwards. She's really doing some hard work for you. Um, Okay, last question. Uh, Tell me about a mantra that you've kept close in your life. Where did you learn it, and how does it personally apply? Ooh, that's a good one. Hmm. I feel like there are so many things I try to think about so there's this one account on Instagram that I follow called Subliming, and they take kind of quotes and mantras and things and uh, just design them in a really beautiful way. And I take a, a lot of times I will take their um, the quotes that they post and use them as like a screensaver on my phone because I feel like they're so powerful, inspiring, and I'll, I'll kind of change those out seasonally. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of things that I get from there that I just feel like I kind of repeat to myself every day or I see it over and over. And the one that I actually have on my phone right now is, um, it just says 
slow down. And I feel like that has been very valuable to me because uh, a lot of times, especially since I do work from home, since my work has been on the internet and things, I feel, and, and especially since you're not leaving and going to an office as much, you kind of feel like you're working all the time. It's been harder to split like your work life and your personal life. Um, yeah. It's easier to stay on your computer past 5 p.m. and keep going. And when I'm doing all these other projects on the side, um, pushing myself to, oh, like I have to do another Cooking Every Country like the, every week, you know, and realizing actually no one's putting that that pressure on you to do that things will get done like you can take that time and give yourself a break and just slow down and everything is going to be okay and so especially throughout the pandemic just reminding myself like you don't have to be productive 24 7 it is okay to relax and do nothing it is okay to scroll mindlessly on your phone for five hours if that's what you need at the moment um so slow down is probably probably the mantra that I've been going for the past uh, few months. That is, that is perfect. And I think a, a lot of people, uh, could really relate to the sentiment. Um, I follow a guy named Jonathan Faust on, uh, Stitcher. It's the podcast platform that I usually use. And, um, he has meditations and he also has, uh, lectures, uh, that he would do live and now he just does them kind of like we're doing this podcast. And he had a whole lecture that was, if you want to speed up, slow down. Uh, since then, I've always applied that to the times when I feel so worked up and I'm like, okay, well, then I probably need to escape this space for a minute. Maybe I should just uh, put on my headphones and go for a walk, listen to some music, you know, just kind of clear my head or maybe I can meditate. Like I can find a space where I can slow down and then when you can think clearly and you can lay all the cards out right, the progress that you will make because of that clear headspace will outdo you frantically running from one thing to the other and just overdoing yourself. So Yeah, absolutely. I definitely relate to that. Yeah. I'm 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 in full agreement and and uh and I feel like as a songwriter and musician, you know, because I was so used to playing and touring and and, and spending a lot of time just doing the thing every day. I feel like when I'm home, I have to do the thing every day. And, and so I, I do feel those unneeded pressures a lot of the time. Um, I agree with you on that. Um, Ashley, you'll be pleased to know that tonight will be the first time that I'm actually hosting anyone over at my apartment. I have three friends coming Hi. over, which made me go to the bed bath and beyond the other day and get more than two plates and <laughs> i'm gonna make some i'm gonna make some spaghetti and i'm gonna do a sauce from scratch that uh from a recipe that a friend of mine gave me and it's gonna be great <laughs> it's exciting you'll have to send me pictures i love seeing people's food pictures i have people tag me in them on instagram um yeah. not food related to me just anything they eat so yeah. <laughs> I love seeing everyone's food pictures please send them to me um also I have a couple friends that live in Athens so I need to connect you with them please do that would be that would be so great um I've had no problem being connected in this town it's really been great I'm I'm so fortunate and uh everybody has been so uplifting and you know and, and just like encouraging of your growth and and I try to do everything I can to be a part of that and assist other people the same way. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to get to talk to you. I love following all your projects. And so I can't wait to hear the other interviews that you do. Yeah, Oh well, I'm looking forward to how those are going to go as well. Thank you so much, Ashley. That was delightful. Ashley Locke, everybody. Managing editor for Good Grit Magazine. What's up? Aren't you inspired right now? Don't you want to make that pad tie that you were always too afraid to make? Don't you want to think about food waste? 
don't you want to donate to your local food bank? Well, I do. I'm pumped. Follow A. Shea Lowe. A. S. H. E. A. L. O. On Instagram to hear more about what Ashley's doing. And you can hear more about the Cooking Every Country project that she's doing. And you can hear more about Good Grit Magazine. Let's get cooking, baby. Let's do it. Aren't you ready to cook? I sure am. Thank you for listening to Artworks. Kel Kellum, bringing you the intro and outro music from his album, Adding to the Ashes. You can find it on all the streaming things. Or you can buy it off a of Bandcamp if you ain't cheap. Cody Rogers brought us the Artworks artwork. Thank you, Cody. You rock. If you're interested in any of my musical endeavors, I just released a song. It's called Confused. You can find it on the YouTube. You can find it on my Instagram. You can find it on my Facebook and my Bandcamp. And all of that is under Spencer Thomas Songs. Remember to think about your recipe writers. Maybe read their stories when you make their delicious dish. I'm Spencer Thomas. Thank you, thank you for listening to Artworks. Respect and gratitude. Mucho love. Bye-bye.